Hello, this is Leslie Grafa-Tenser, and this is Law to Fact. Today I'm speaking with Professor Andrea Armstrong about a crim pro-investigation issue, Terry Stumps. Today I'm speaking with Andrew Armstrong, the Law Visiting Committee Distinguished Professor of Law at Loyola University, New Orleans, and we're talking about Terry Stops. Professor Armstrong explains Terry Stops, gives the rules for Terry Stops, talks about using Terry Stops and where they fit into any kind of criminal procedure exam. But what's most interesting about this discussion is that she gives a background to Terry Stops and talks about the humanity that goes into any kind of decision-making in law. I encourage you to listen to this, not only if you're taking Crim Pro, but if you're interested in law or law school generally, because we talk about the importance of understanding law and how it makes for better lawyers. And law to factors, I have some other great news. As you may notice, we have new equipment. Some of you have complained about my shoddy equipment prior. As you know, this is a labor of love, and I'm doing the best I can. But the good news, fear not, we now have solid equipment. And that leads me into my next request. If you like us, please rate us, subscribe to us, give us feedback on social media platforms. It makes a difference. And as always, if there's a particular topic about which you'd like us to discuss or a professor with whom you'd like us to speak, email us at lawtofact.gmail.com or tweet us at lawtofact and we'll see that your needs are met. If you're listening to Law to Fact, chances are at some point you'll be taking the bar exam. Well, getting ready for the bar exam means you'll need to choose the study program that's right for you. Kaplan Bar Review will get you ready to take on test day with confidence by offering $100 off live and on-demand bar review with offer code LESLIE100. Visit www.kaplanbarreview.com today to sign up. And here's my discussion with Professor Andrea Armstrong. So thank you so much for joining me. Um, One of the things that I think always... Um, is a difficult concept for students is Terry Stop. It sounds like it wouldn't be, but it really is. So I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about what Terry Stop is, and then we could talk about how students can identify it on an exam. Sure. Um, I think the the starting point for really understanding Terry is knowing about the Fourth Amendment, right? So the Fourth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution uh, prohibits unreasonable searches and seizures uh, and requires probable cause for a warrant. Um, And so that's the text. And what the court has done um, since the founding through present has found a series of exceptions to this warrant requirement or probable cause requirement. Uh, So in my class, we cover 11 different exceptions, right? So I tend to think of the Fourth Amendment as as like Swiss cheese, right? (laughs) It was once a whole piece of cheese, and we have gradually poked out a number of exceptions where... The police can search you uh, even without probable cause or without or without a warrant. And so, um, so for me, when I teach it, you have to understand Terry within that framework. Um, and so, Terry was a case that created a brand new exception to the Fourth Amendment. And and for those reasons, it's it's just revolutionary, right? right. Um, and it wasn't decided until 1968. Um, but essentially what Terry created is um, this exception to the warrant requirement that allows the police officer, uh, when they have reasonable suspicion, which is a new standard that was created um, through the case, uh, to 
Uh, first, temporarily detain or stop a person for investigatory purposes. And separately, uh, if they have reasonable suspicion that the person is armed and or dangerous, uh, to frisk them. Um, and so, it, you know, we kind of take it for granted that police can stop and frisk you without a warrant or without probable cause, uh, but that's not actually the case. And so, yeah, so I want to just go back to the whole cloth idea first, which mm-hmm. is the Constitution built in this idea that we have a right to protect against unreasonable searches and seizures that basically the police can't necessarily infringe on your personhood um, unless, and Terry is one of those unlesses. Is that correct? Absolutely. Um, And and it's really, you know, it's a troubling case, you know, from lots of different perspectives, right? So if you are an originalist, right? So you read the text very closely, you rely on what the constitution says, perhaps even the intent of the framers, then stops and frisks are not in the constitution. They are absolutely not in there. Um, You know, and if you are thinking more of a kind of a non-originalist, but you believe in this evolving constitution, right, that our constitution adapts to our current times, well, is this the is this really the way that we want our constitution to adapt such that we lower barriers uh, for uh, the government to exercise its powers against individuals? Right. And Um, I... I suspect, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I suspect some people are pro-Terry and some people are anti-Terry. You know, I'm, anti-Terry is an, is an interesting term. Um, I'm not sure that, that we have people who are anti-Terry in general, but they may be anti-Terry as applied. Um, and, and this really actually, um, there's a fascinating story behind Terry, um, that I love to tell my students, but so tell you know, us what is that story? Oh, okay. Um, so Terry versus Ohio, right? So we have here's your cast of characters, right? You have Officer McFadden, who was late, later uh, a detective, um, and you know he testifies that he saw something odd, you know that something didn't seem like quite right, mm-hmm. and so he kind of stopped and watched two people. And these two people, two African-American men, uh, were walking up and down a block. And his, his gut told him that something was off, uh, but he didn't know. He didn't know. And so he decided to continue waiting. And um, Officer McFadden is white, right? And had, at that point, served over 20 years in the police department. So that gives you an idea of his age, right? So mid-60s, you know, he probably joined the force in the mid-40s, right? Mm-hmm. So he's coming from a particular time and place in our racial history. And then the fascinating part happens. So then a third man, Katz, joins Terry and Chilton, the two men who had been walking back and forth on this block. And Katz is white. And so part of what led to the situation in Terry, which is the police officer, Officer McFadden, stopping and frisking Terry, was the fact that there was an interracial conversation and gathering on a public street in downtown area. In the 60s. In the 60s. And he thought that was odd. He, <laughs> he, it struck him as funny. Right. So what else could these three people have to talk about other than crime? Right. And so none of that 
is mentioned in the U.S. Supreme Court case. And, and really, Tony Thompson at NYU wrote a, a fabulous article where he drilled down into the briefs, into the trial testimony. I mean, he traced the case all the way back. Um, and it was clear that race played a reason or played a role in Officer McFadden's uh, determination to stop them, right? Uh, because in the Terry case, at the time that he stopped um, the three men, um, he didn't have probable cause and he admitted that he didn't have probable cause, but he thought something was funny going on. Maybe they were casing a jewelry store for a, for you know a robbery or something. And then he flips Terry around and pats down his outer jacket and that's where he finds a weapon, right? And so ultimately they, they were arrested, but, but the challenge was you've got this police officer who really only stopped them because he was confused by uh, the interracial activity that was happening on a downtown street, uh, which was now not the norm at that time. Cause, right, not because he had probable cause that a crime was about to be committed. Right. Absolutely not. And so, um, and so this case, which comes out of a particular racial moment in, in, in our history, then is cleansed of race hmm. and becomes this objective exception to the warrant requirement, right? Fast forward from 1968 to the late 90s and to 2000s, and there we start seeing uh, specific evidence around racial profiling and use of stop and frisk disproportionately against racial minorities, right? That's where we see, um, you know, that's when the term driving while black, right, mm -hmm. came about. Um, that's when we start collecting this type of data that was part of the New York stop and frisk case, um, that was part of the New Jersey turnpike case, where we start seeing a disproportionate use of stop and frisk against racial minorities, but also we are finding lower clearance rates on those stops, right? right. And so in terms of police efficiency, it's actually uh, hindering their efficient um, and effective protection of the public because they're getting lower hit rates uh, or finding contraband or what have you when they stop a racial minority, but they are also spending a lot more of their time stopping racial minorities than they do other groups. So anyway, that that's a, a kind of side back note, fascinating origin story. Yeah, but that, um, I mean, that's, that's what Terry. makes the podcast interesting. That's really interesting and helpful. That's wild. Yeah. That's right. I'm, I'm, I'm taking it all in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm so really silent. <laughs> well, it, I mean, it's fascinating. We don't ever talk about it, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and for me, I find that when we know the stories of a lot of these major cases, it helps my students to be um, better equipped to criticize the status quo, right? So often we take the law as the right outcome, right? Well, yeah. the law says it, it says that we can do it, so we should do it. Right. Um, but when we understand that these laws come out of flawed places and spaces, um, you know, we are also more likely to challenge them uh, on behalf of our clients when we think that um, they're actually producing the wrong result. And the teachable so. moment in all of that is it is okay to challenge court decisions. You know, you think about Bowers versus Hardwick, and then you have Lawrence versus Texas. And in Lawrence versus Texas, the Supreme Court's able to say, we were wrong. Yeah. 
if the court can say they're wrong, it's okay for students to say there's wrong. And the other teachable moment that comes out from what you say, which is not necessarily a, a Terry or a uh, crim pro moment, yeah. is it's really important to understand the humanity behind these cases, that these cases really were about people that were minding their own business and ended up in jail when you're mm-hmm. talking about crim pro. And I do think that that helps make for a better law student because it helps make for a, a more nuanced understanding of the analysis. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that that at least, you know, here at Loyola, we we take very seriously is this idea that we are not just kind of teaching you with the law. We're, we're training you how to be a lawyer, right? Mm-hmm. And that means being able to be strategic in how you make your arguments um, to recognize where, you know, a lot of our Supreme Court decisions are fractured opinions, right? Reasonable people fall on different sides of these debates. And very rarely uh, do we see unanimous opinions coming out for lots of different reasons. And so it's okay to question precedent, right? Uh, Because there are likely three or four justices who also question that decision at some point. You know, that's a great point. That's such an obvious point that I really hadn't thought of. If justices are questioning their own themselves <laughs> or their colleagues, I should say, on the bench, that's a really helpful point. Um, Absolutely. And so I encourage our students um, in particular, yes, they must know the doctrine. They have to know how the law works, and, and I hope we'll get a chance to talk a little bit about the Terry Doctrine. Yeah, we're going to get um, back to that. <laughs> but, but I think the other part is um, understanding that law is malleable, right? And so when we are advancing our clients' interests, it's more than just what the law says, right? We can ask um, for changes in the law, and we should, right? Yeah. Because the, you know, we're, law is imperfect. Yes, good point. So back to Terry. All right. Mm-hmm. So I'm a student and I am learning Terry. And I, so I guess I need to know the parameters of Terry. If, is that a fair way to put it? Um, yeah. So what, I mean, how, I, what would you say? So, you know, again, so Terry is, is really best understood by context, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, what Terry did is it, there is this level of suspicion, which is called reasonable suspicion right? That's what a police officer has to have in order to stop an individual. So um, what is reasonable suspicion? Well, it's between having a gut or a hunch, which is not allowed, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and probable cause, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's helpful to understand it within that space. It is more than just, you know, I have a Uh, excuse me, I have a bad feeling about this, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, the way the court talks about it is for reasonable suspicion to exist, the police officer has to be able to give specific and articulable facts from which an inference can be made. Um, So it can't just be a police officer's feeling, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But if they can name you know, individualized uh, facts mm-hmm. from which an inference of criminality can be uh, gleaned, then that's enough, right? Because the idea is that, um, you know, unlike when a police officer arrests you, a, a Terry stop is, is a temporary detention. It, and it, they're not moving you from one place to another, but they're simply stopping you where you are. 
okay. um, where you happen to be for a limited amount of time uh, to just figure out further whether their inferences were correct or not. And that's, I think, an important point to understand is that this is just a stop. And because it's a stop versus an arrest, it's okay to have a lower level of suspicion. Absolutely. And so when we think about arrests, I mean, think about the types of burdens that creates on an individual, right? They are taken from wherever they are, likely to a police station. Uh, They may not be able to contact their friends and family. They're in an isolated place. They're not in public, for example. Um, And so one of the things that the court talked about in establishing uh, this exception to the Fourth Amendment, the, the Terry Stops, is that a lot of these occur in public places, Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that they, they have refused thus far to put a time limit on uh, how long a Terry stop can last. But there are a series of cases where they've said, mm, you know, three hours, three hours is a bit long. Right. Uh, so there is no uh, doctrinal time limit. Um in terms of how long a stop can last, but it is um, only supposed to last as long as necessary for the officer to either, um, you know, find that uh, there are additional facts that warrant probable cause and and an arrest, or uh, that the inferences were incorrect based on those individual facts. Okay. Um, so that that's the the stop portion of the doctrine. Um, And there's lots of ways that you can be stopped, right? So if they uh, hold your luggage for a certain amount of time, that's the same as a stop of you, right? And a stop requires reasonable suspicion uh, that criminal activity, this is my favorite phrase. Are you ready? Yep. That criminal activity is afoot. Okay. (laughs) I love that phrase. Um, And, you know, my students and I will often like, you know, crouch around the classroom going, criminal activity, it's a foot, right? Um, but, you know, it just means that something is happening, but we don't really know what. And so that's the stop part. Then there is a second part, which is the frisk part. Okay. And they have to have separate reasonable suspicion for the frisk. So just because they stop you doesn't mean they can also frisk you, right? Aha. Uh-huh. Yes. Interesting. So, Yes, and it's it's a similar test um, as the the test for a stop. Uh, the test for a frisk is that there is reasonable suspicion uh, that the person is armed and or dangerous. Um, and so, when we talk about frisks in class, we talk about well, what does it mean to be frisked? Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, it means a open, uh, flat hand uh, that can pat down the outer garments, right? Uh, So there's no kind of manipulation of the pockets, right? The fingers aren't moving. It is literally like, do I feel something that could be a weapon? And again, and I'm just going to say that Mm -hmm. that this, to keep in mind, because I'm trying to think like a student, that this is happening in public. You're not in custody. This is pre-arrest. So this is a right to touch you or your personhood or your things without even knowing that you may have committed a, or without, I shouldn't, that's not fair to say, without even knowing that you are probably committed a crime, I guess is what I would say. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, um, 
reasonable suspicion again is that is a pretty easy uh, burden to to satisfy for a police officer, right? You know, name one or two facts that are specific to this particular individual, right? And and there you have it. A stop is okay. Um, at, but the frisk, you have to name one or two factors uh, that would indicate that they are armed or dangerous. And and the whole purpose or the reason for the frisk um, is premised on officer safety, right? So it's not about do you have drugs or evidence of a crime in your pocket, right? That's not why they're supposed to be frisking you. Uh, the frisk is only allowed to assure the officer's safety mm-hmm. while they are stopping you and temporarily investigating um, whether their inference was correct. And so because of that, they have to be able to um, identify, again, a specific and articulable fact about why they think that person may be armed and dangerous. Um, And so, you know, there's a lot of uh, cases that say, well, you know, an officer was patting them down and, you know, felt this was uh, particularly when when crack was was pretty prevalent, mm-hmm. would would feel a big rock of crack, mm-hmm. right? And the question becomes: Well, they were frisking you for officer safety. Under stop and frisk, can they reach in the pocket and grab what they know in their years of experience uh, is crack cocaine? Well, yes and no, right? They can't do it under the stop and frisk exception. Unless they consider it a danger to themselves. Okay. But that's where all of the other exceptions to the Fourth Amendment come in. So there may be other ways they can get into the pocket, Mm -hmm. but not necessarily through the stop and frisk exception. Yes. So So it gets a little complicated. It does get complicated. And I'm going to ask you, so, so can you just give me a hypothetical of what type of facts would be okay for a stop and what kind of facts would be okay for a frisk? Um, so one thing, um, just to kind of also put in the background is that both determinations can take into account an officer's experience, right? Um, so it's still a reasonable police officer, but you're thinking about a reasonable police officer with the same amount of experience, um, as, uh, you know, in this case, it was officer McFadden. Okay. So let's say that I am a police officer with uh, 20 years of street-level experience. Okay. Um, You know, let's say that I am, you know, through that experience, quite familiar with the drug trade. You know, I I know a lot of the the signals and, you know, how the the buying and the selling happens on corners because I've observed it for over 20 years. And so I'm allowed to take that into account when I'm developing reasonable suspicion. And so let's say that I am, you know, walking my, my street and I see someone uh, who is sitting on a known corner uh, for drug sales. Okay. So there's some neighborhood information uh, that's helpful to me. Um, and I see this person looking back and forth, back and forth, up and down the street. Um, I see that person um, identify someone else a block away, um, and they raise their hand, um, you know, it, they raise their hand in the air, right? Um, so at that point, um, you know, I can obviously go over and say hello, 
right? Because mm-hmm. that no, nothing in the Constitution stops a police officer from saying hello. That's okay. considered a consensual encounter. Um, but if the person then says, you know, then starts to move and I say, well, wait, I have a few questions for you. We might ask, is there reasonable suspicion uh, with a specific and articulable fact in order to keep that person temporarily where they are for a few minutes while I ask some questions. So is the sitting in the corner and raising your hand enough? Well, I, I, think, I mean, this is the hypo I give to my right. students, right? <laughs> is it enough? And um, what often results in conversation is they say, well, the neighborhood factors seem to matter, mm-hmm. right? So um, if I'm sitting in one of our city's parks, right, Um, a very nice park and people are out and they're jogging and I just raise my hand at somebody and they wave and they wave back, well, maybe that wouldn't be reasonable suspicion. But if we take that same individual and put them in a neighborhood that we know uh, uh, is a site, an active site for drug purchases, then that individual's actions look a little different. Um, And so for Terry, you can use neighborhood plus individual facts in order to develop reasonable suspicion. Hmm. Um, You know, and so that might be a case of of where there is borderline reasonable suspicion. It's not necessarily a very uh, clear-cut case. Um, You know, other examples from the case law are where uh, there's a 911 call, right? Uh, so someone calls 911 and says there's a suspicious character sitting out at the bus stop. Um, I think something's about to happen, right? And the question is, is, is a 911 call sufficient, right? It, it mm-hmm. is individualized. It's certainly not enough for probable cause, right? Standing right. alone where you don't know anything about the caller. You don't know anything about the person. You don't know, you know, there's a lot of facts that you don't know. Um, and so it might not be sufficient for probable cause, but it would likely be suspi- um, sufficient for reasonable suspicion, right? Mm-hmm. Remember, which is a lower standard. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so so those are a couple of examples of of what a reasonable suspicion around a stop might look like. For a frisk, um, it could be a, a number of different things. And so, let's say that the officer has already received the person's name. Uh, they put the person into their little database and see that there's active warrants out for um, violent armed crimes. That's usually enough for a reasonable suspicion. Even even without a current indicator, they see past behavior. That's enough for them to be able to do reasonable suspicion. And so, and what, just as an aside, I actually live right outside of Manhattan. So what was happening in New York City is they were using this stop and frisk and the facts were so low. Yeah. They didn't really rise to what was okay, but they were saying, well, we have this, this, you know, power to stop and frisk, but it wasn't really, they were, they were abusing their power, I should say. Yeah. Because the facts didn't get rise to what's appropriate under the case law. Absolutely. I mean, I think that it, what we've seen in practice is that it's become a vehicle to harass particularly unpopular groups. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, to harass groups that, um, you know, some people believe are, are committing the crimes or, or committing more crimes or um, it certainly aligns with kind of the broken windows policing. 
right, um, idea. So that idea is that if we police really heavily uh, kind of low-level crimes, um, trespass, you know, even littering, right, if our presence is out there to make sure that the, there's no quality of life types of, uh, of problems, then that will also prevent the occurrence of larger crimes in those same areas. Got it. And I, I think, you know, Rudy Giuliani really um, trumpeted and, and William Bratton, um, you <laughs> no know, as, as police, <laughs> as police chief, I mean, they really trumpeted that approach. Right. Um, they, uh, you know, that's how they addressed Times Square, um, you know, and that's how they addressed in particular the outer boroughs. And, you know, we see the legacy of that. In, yeah. in the racially disproportionate stops yeah. Um, yeah. in that litigation. Yeah. Um, all right. So this has been super helpful. So really quickly, um, I think you've kind so if you gave an exam question, like what would be the hypo? Ah, what would be the hypo for my exam? Well, my exam questions are, so, you know, the Fourth Amendment, um, the real skill in Concrete Pro is being able to use different exceptions and sequence them for a continuing encounter or interaction. Okay, so so, repeat that, sequence them. That's Yes. Okay. Yes. And so very rarely will an exam test one exception to the Fourth Amendment standing alone. There will never be a question that just tests you on stop and frisk. Okay. But rather... There is a police encounter, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And within that encounter, it is being able to identify the portion of which which is governed by stop and frisk, right? So often I'll have, um, you know, a, an encounter that starts with the police stopping somebody, right? That may be a consensual encounter. But by the end of the story, that person is in jail, locked up, their property has been seized, they have been searched, right? (laughs) Their house has been searched, their spouse is objected to the search, right? So there is one big encounter. It's all going on. And the, the trick for a student is to be able to say, okay, well, this first part, constitutional, because it was consensual, you know, we can do that. This second part, though, this was a this looks a lot like a Terry stop. Yeah, the police officer didn't say, "I am hereby detaining you to investigate temporarily my inferences," but it looks and smells a lot like a Terry stop. So, what rules apply? Okay, and then being able to move through, you know, so when the police officer reaches in the pocket, well, that wasn't under Terry. Under which exception can they reach into the pocket? Right. And it moves you through the encounter. I think the second test um, or the, the, the second uh, trick for, for law students is to also recognize that um, their first instance of um, unco- unconstitutionality right, by the police officer may also be the origin point for their exclusion of the evidence um, under the fruit of the poisonous tree doctrine, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so it's really hard to test Concrim Pro in isolation, um, but it's really about being able to deploy the exceptions um, at the appropriate time and also recognize from which moment on everything occurring afterwards becomes illegal. 
Well, that, that actually is even more helpful than knowing what a question is. That That's great advice. Um, wonderful. Anything else you want to add to the conversation? I mean, I love Terry versus Ohio as a case. Um, mm-hmm. I think it is uh, fascinating and, and it's hard for us to imagine life without it. But in fact, we existed for a long time uh, without it. And, and so, you know, this standard, this brand new exception was created. Um, and we really have to think about, you know, what are the ways in which that actually helps us advance justice and keep us safe? Um, and what are the ways in which it actually is counterproductive uh, to keeping us safe and, and producing justice? And, and that's the conversation that that I hope that my students engage in as lawyers when they graduate. And that's what makes this so interesting. And, and this podcast in particular so exciting is that this is about practice as much as it's about learning. And these cases, you know, I, I, I actually have a theme. I've kind of said it before in some of these earlier episodes called flashcard learning for law school. You can't just learn the rule and you need to learn the life behind it. And I think that what you've pointed out, which is so interesting and exciting, is the real life implications of what you're, what's going on in the classroom. And that's to me what makes law school most exciting. And truthfully, that's what makes for the best law students because once they ingest that, mm-hmm. they can use it to write a more meaningful, more nuanced exam. And you know, I hate to be about the A because we mm-hmm. think about the A, but it does help with the A. I have one more question for you. I'm catching sure. you off guard. If you had to give one piece of advice to law students, what would that piece of advice be? There's so many, like, you know, and, and we work with students, right? I, I've got a hundred students. I, I, yeah. I tell students what I think every single day. Um, but if I had to pick one piece of advice, um, I think the idea would be to stay curious, right? That's good advice, yes. That's good I think, um, so the best lawyers that I know are the ones who are curious. Hmm. Um, you know, they it's, and they're not curious to, to be a know-it-all and they're not curious, um, you know, because they've got nothing better to do. They're curious because they honestly want to know. Okay. And, and in being curious, it opens you up to so many different ways of learning, um, different interactions and conversations uh, and you're going to find insights in ways that you don't if you just simply do what you're told every single day. Um, so I guess my that would be my advice for, for law students is to stay curious. That's wonderful advice and wonderful advice to end on. Thank you so much for giving your time. Great. I'm glad to do it. And thank you for having me. It was a real honor. Thank you. So that's my discussion with Professor Andrea Armstrong on Terry Stops. Once again, a reminder that Kaplan Bar Review is offering you $100 off their live and on-demand bar review program. Just use Leslie 100 as your code when you sign on at www.kaplanbarreview.com. That's this week's episode. Enjoy your week. See you next time on Lot of Fact.